All right, let us get started. Okay, so uh, I, I think if it's okay with everybody, even though I love interactive Shurim, I'll mostly talk and not pass the mic, but please feel free to write in comments, questions, suggestions on the chat. I'm pretty good at multitasking, and I will uh, I will take a look at the chat as we are uh, going on here. I also should greet my father, Rabbi Yosef Blau is here. Okay, very nice to have him. Okay, so um, we are talking about where Zionism comes from, and I think a very important question that has not lost its relevance the relationship between Zionism and anti-Semitism. And I think it's hard to argue historically that there's no relationship whatsoever. I don't think that's a very convincing argument. Uh, clearly, those of us who study our Zionist history notice, will know how certain anti-Semitic events inspired a lot of the Zionist leaders. Hey, the most famous example, of course, is Theodor Herzl. And uh, in any biography of Herzl, they'll talk about the impact that the Dreyfus trial had on him, that Herzl was a rather assimilated Jew. And at first he thought, like many Jews, that we'll just make it into the Western world in modernity. Like, it's not like the world used to be. Now we don't have to live in ghettos anymore. We're part of society. And when he saw the way people, the way the mobs were yelling about Dreyfus, this was kind of like this huge wake up that maybe it's not going to play out that way. And maybe we can't, uh, we're not going to integrate so easily as we thought. And then he became uh, really the father of modern Zionism. And if we went to other events, I think we'd find something similar. Like some of the Russian Zionists, like what sponsored or inspired their Zionism. So we'll talk about the Kishnev pogrom. Okay, uh, they, I know how many of you guys are, are Bialik fans. But Bialik is a very powerful poem called Be'ir Haharega where Bialik goes, he was sent as a reporter to the aftermath of the Kishinev pogrom. And he'll talk about how the from Jews, I know they're good at asking halachic questions, but they're not so good at defending themselves. Like they'll say, oh, after the pogrom, is my wife still permitted to me? Okay, but uh, where where were they when they needed to defend themselves? It's, it's a little bit painful to read his poem, but it's very powerful. Be'ariga, certainly that played a role. Or, you know, blood libels. Uh, we have a knowledgeable crowd, you probably know this too. There was a blood libel in Russia. I think it was 1912, although I might be getting the year wrong, with Mendel Bylas. Now, it's really remarkable. We think about it. Wait, blood libels, that's, you know, that's like York in like the 1100s. Like, we don't do that anymore in the 20th century, right? There was a blood libel in the 20th century. Okay, so here, if you have things like the Dreyfus trial and uh, the Kishnev pogrom and uh, the blood libel with Mendel Bylas, so obviously anti-Semitism played a role in the Zionist project. Okay, but that doesn't mean that the Zionist project could be reduced to a response to anti-Semitism. In fact, if you look at various Zionists, you could differentiate between what you might call the political Zionists and the cultural Zionists, right? The political Zionists basically argued, you know, the Jews need a homeland. Like whenever we're subject to some larger government, other governmental body, Right, we're not really safe. We're not really secure. But if we ruled over ourselves, that would change everything. Right, which is certainly a legitimate thought. Okay, so we'll call that political Zionism. Right, some names that we'd associate with that would be uh, Theodore Herzl and Pinsker. Right, Pinsker was another parallel to Herzl. Okay, <clears throat> but I know how many of you have read Achad Ha'am. But if you read Achad Ha'am, he's really curious about what Jewish culture is going to look like and how we could revive Jewish culture. 
And Achad Am was rather knowledgeable about our tradition, like he grew up from. It's always a big advantage, right? If you're going to be like a good secular Zionist, it's always an advantage to go up from, because then you'll, at least you'll, you'll, you'll know our tradition. Okay, so uh, Achad Am knew about Torah, and he was trying to figure out what could be like a modern Western secular version of a Jewish culture. But that is way well beyond the question of just finding a homeland or a refuge. So again, even before we get to Torah and religious Jewry and rabbis who support the Zionist project, they already we can see that there's another element. Okay, so just that's my brief words of introduction. Uh, we're not denying that anti-Semitism played a role in inspiring Zionism, and we're not denying that some Zionist thinkers that was their perhaps major focus. But at the same time, uh, there were other perspectives even among the world of secular Zionists. Okay, now let us move from. Ah, okay, very good. We might have a Mike Epstein question. Okay, Mike, are you, I'm just curious, are you um, Moshe's father? So know who uh, is asking a good question here. Okay, so Mike asked about Moses Hess. So I, I would actually agree that Hess is a little bit more similar to a Chara'am, but I'll just point out with Hess, you get a little bit of a different note. Again, a lot of different Zionisms. Okay, as I'm sure you're all aware, for many people, Zionism in its early years was very much connected to the socialist ideal. Okay, in fact, uh, it's so interesting how the world changes. Uh, history is just amazing, right? There was a party called the Mapam, which was basically a Jewish communist party. They were one of the most significant parties when the state was created. Like now, we, we live in a world that, you know, it's good there are people even older than me on this, so people will confirm it. Like, let's say, I don't know, maybe Avner and Leave won't believe us, okay, that, uh, you know, we're now pretty convinced that, you know, socialism or communism is a big, a big failure, okay? But, you know, in the 1940s, not everybody was convinced yet, okay? And in fact, in 48, believe it or not, there was like a debate, like in the Zionist movement, should we align with America or with the Soviet Union? Like many people felt more ideologically in line with the Russians. Like it's, for us, it's kind of inconceivable after like knowing what the Soviet Union was like. But in the 1940s, that was a real possibility, right? You could look it up. I would not make this up. There are Knesset members who were like distraught when Stalin died. It was just, it's just a, a, a hard to fathom for us. So I'm just pointing out that Moshe Hess had a big socialist component to his Zionism, which again, I guess it doesn't really answer your question, Mike. But again, I would say it's more than just, oh, we need to escape anti-Semitism. There is some kind of, uh, yeah, I guess I'll say it firmly. He's more like a haram, and there's like there's some kind of utopian vision. Like I was, for a haram, it was more in a certain amount of culture and education and values. And for Hess, it had a strong socialist component. Okay, but again, I think that points to, oh my God, Natan. I, guys, I, I would just read what Natan wrote in the chat. Okay, guys, good Natan came. Natan says that his sister was on a kibbutz this summer, volunteering on JNF, and they had a Stalin portrait hanging. Wait, Natan, which kibbutz? And did they really? Uh, I don't know. Wait. I don't know off the top of my head. I have to ask my sister, but I was shocked when she told me. So, Wait, like, my only I question is: did, did they really meet it, or was some kind of like remnant joke? Uh, I have to ask her, but it seemed like she said they actually like tie it up. I don't know. Okay. Like they meant it. It wasn't just joke. Okay, please check out your sister because that's something I thought that had finally died. We'd finally given up on uh, the idea that Stalin was our hero. But uh, maybe, yeah, I'm there. Yeah, please. 
how in line with political philosophy would it be like a lot of conceptions of the state were just about like secure keeping people secure in some way or another so like how different than most conceptions of the state oh that, that's actually a great question that uh, avner is right like everything else we jews are influenced by our broader culture many of you know there's a lot of nationalist movements in the 1800s right think about like, the drive for irish independence or the drive for italian independence so Zionism does not come out of nowhere, but I, I don't see that as a problem. Like, why shouldn't the Jewish community, if there are good ideas going out there in the world that could help us, why shouldn't we take them? Okay. Yeah, that's I, not I, a problem like, at all. I'm sorry? Yeah, that's not a problem at all. I'm just curious. Right, but you're asking a good question. Like, how did it play out in the Irish and Italian sphere? So I don't feel like I'm knowledgeable enough to answer that question, actually. So I'm going to duck it. Avner, why don't you do research for us for next time? You'll let us know how Irish and Italian nationalism played out in terms of political versus cultural. Yeah, leave. What do you want to say? Sorry, Lee, we're not hearing you. Leave? Yeah. You know, leave while you're figuring it out. I'm going to continue for now. You could also write in the chat. Don't forget. Okay, here we go. Oh, guys, I should say, not only do I have my father, my mother as well. What a sheer. Okay, excellent. Okay, so here we go. So now let's move to the religious community. Now, as many of you know, when Zionism started, most of orthodoxy was negative. And they had a very simple point. They said, this is great, but these are Jews who've rejected our tradition. They do not keep the laws of Kashrut. They are Michal Shabbat. So we can't really uh, you know, get in the game, as it were. Okay, so there, there's no denying it. One has to be historically honest. The majority of the orthodox rabbinate was negative about this movement. And there were a few exceptions. So it might be worthy to look at our exceptions and see how they play out in this endeavor. So I'm just going to mention three names, okay? The most famous two, are, of course, are Rav Cook and Rav Soloveitchik, with Rav Cook being the voice that is most associated with uh, a religious... Uh, we're going to get there in a second. Abner, very good. Okay. Okay, with a religious rabbi who supported the secular Zionist movement. Uh, we have Rav Soloveitchik. Now, interesting, this was a shift in Rav Soloveitchik's career. Okay, Rav Soloveitchik grew up in a family, obviously a very, very prominent rabbinic family, which was pro-Aguda. In fact, Rav Soloveitchik was only in Israel once in his life in 1935, where he tried out to be the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. He lost to a man named Rav Moshe Victor Amiel. One of the reasons he lost is because he was viewed as the Aguda candidate. I mean, Rav Amiel was viewed as the real Zionist candidate. And they wanted the real Zionist, and that's why he lost. And over the course of World War II, Rav Soloveitchik adopted a much more enthusiastic stance about Zionism. So we've got Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Cook. And a little bit of a less, he's a little bit of a forgotten fellow. It's a little bit sad, but Rav Rhinus. Okay, Rav Rhinus was an earlier Rav. I think that the Rav and Rav Cook, besides being great rabbis, they both launched a community, as it were. So I think, like, if you want to be remembered, this is like a brief aside, you could be remembered because of a great work, like you're a safer that's going to keep you remembered. Or you could be remembered because you're like, you, you have a, a movement or a community that's a result of your leadership. So I would say, just to give you an example, like the Minchas Chinuch was written by a man named Rav Yosef Babad. Since I, I'm doing already a number of tangents, I'm not going to go into who he is. I don't think he's remembered because he launched a movement, right? There isn't right now any yeshiva in the world who say, we are, you know, ardent disciples of the Minchas Chinuch. That's what keeps our community together. But he wrote a great book, so he's remembered. But with the Rav and Rav Kook, of course, the Dati Lumi community, the religious Zionist community in Israel, views Rav Kook as their rabbinic, you know, uh, pole star. 
And of course, modern Orthodox in America would focus on Rav Soloveitchik the same way. So there, they they get they like win on both counts, both because of these farm they rode and because of the communities they built. Okay. Oh, there you go, Natan. Wait, why in the world? Oh, Babachel. It's probably his descendants, right, Natan? It's probably Rabbi Bad descendant. Hey, that is interesting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So in any case, let's just talk very briefly. I'm going to try to argue against making rooting Zionism and anti-Semitism, but there's no denying that if I look at why Rav Reinus was a Zionist, Rav Reinus thought about saving European Jewry. The European Jewry gets persecuted. There are pogroms. We need to save them. And if they had a place of refuge, they'd be saved. So again, I would never want to reduce Zionism to that, but I don't, I don't think we should look down on someone who thinks in those terms. It's reasonable. Right, you're seeing your brethren suffer. You'd like them to not suffer, so you want a way out. So that was Rav Reinus's Zionism. It was quite a, as it were, and what term to use? A limited or narrowly focused Zionism. It was about how Jews should not be persecuted. And Avnus is something very good. It's just amazing to us because we would never imagine it uh, in terms of religious Zionism today. When the Uganda plan came up, right, the religious Zionists voted in favor. Right, Mizrahi voted in favor of the Uganda plan. Now, if I think about Zionism in other terms, it's very hard. Let's say I think about it in messianic terms, right? No one is pining for the Messiah to happen in Uganda, right? Even Idi Amin did not want the Messiah to happen in Uganda, right? That was not the, uh, that was not the plan. But if I'm thinking about Jews not being persecuted in Russia and Poland and the Ukraine, right? So why shouldn't Uganda work just as well as, you know, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv? What's the big deal? So I think that, Abba, you're right, that really shows a, uh, a very political-oriented Zionism. Okay, so again, so when we move from secular Zionism to religious Zionism, we've got this religious version with Rav Reinus saying that's what it's all about, and one manifestation of that is voting in favor of the Uganda plan. Okay, so leave, you're right, leave is pointing out, it's hard to ignore, let me make Leave's point, it is a very good point, okay, it's hard to be purely a political Zionist. And I think Leaves right. I, again, I haven't read it. Though I, I know I have a knowledgeable crowd. I, I bet some people in the room have read it. Have people read Herzl's two books? I'm just curious. I, I've never read them. Right? Herzl wrote two books. Uh, and they kind of, oh, see, it's good. I was getting nervous that I was going to be less knowledgeable than my crowd. But e- apparently even my parents have not read Herzl's two books. Okay, so uh, in any case, wait, Dad, you did? Oh, sorry, my father has. Okay, there you go. One of the two. Okay, but in any case, Leaves right. Let's say Herzl's going to write a portrait of what the Jewish state's going to look like. Like, you can't have no cultural vision. Like, what does that mean? Oh, all I'm going to write is that we're not being, uh, you know, no one is giving us a pogrom in Kishinev because now we're in Tel Aviv. Okay, but you're going to have some notion of society. So, Leave, you're right. I don't mean to say that Herzl had no sense of what Jewish society would look like. I just mean that that wasn't his focus, but Leaves totally right. It's hard to argue that even the political Zionists had no sense of what a Jewish culture would be. But I think that's true about like intellectual splits in general. It tends not to be like a hundred to zero. It tends to be more that what do you emphasize? So let's say if I'm a Chara'am, I'm emphasizing the cultural aspect of the Zionist project. And if I'm Herzl or Rav Reines, I am emphasizing the political element, not that I don't have the other element at all. But I leave your point cuts the other way too, right? Maybe Achadim also was happy about escaping pogroms, but it simply was not his focus. Okay, let me just see the next comment here. Ah, very interesting. Okay, 
Well, Debbie, that's quite interesting. Okay. Like Debbie's suggesting that maybe there was certain gratitude to Russia for supporting the uh, voting in favor of the state of Israel. That is quite interesting. Okay. And now we have guys, I'm sorry, I'm only highlighting students, but Mikey Lerman has just showed up from WashU. Good to have you, Mikey. Mikey, what does L27 stand for? Oh, back when I was a Yankees fan, since they have 27 World Series wins, I made that the number that I use for all my usernames. Okay, great. It's it's good the Yankees haven't won since then, so your number is still accurate. Yeah, I wouldn't even know if they did. I haven't followed in. Oh, okay. All right. I just want to throw that in. Okay, guys, here we go. So let's go back to – so that was um, Rav Reines. Now, clearly I'm emphasizing that to say that Rav Cook and Rav Soloveitchik – have a very different kind of Zionism. So if you'd like a religious Zionism that is not only rooted in escaping anti-Semitism or dealing with anti-Semitism, I think that they have other models. But before we get to their other models, which I think are important, maybe if it's okay, we'll critique a little bit the first model. Again, in a secular context, we have Herzl and Pinsker. And in a religious context, we have Rev. Rhinus. Uh, maybe I'll throw it to the crowd for a second. If you wanted to critique that, I think there are actually several critiques you could say. Like, what is limited or maybe even incorrect about that approach? That what is the main rationale driving the Zionist project? Escaping anti-Semitism. Okay? Getting to a safer location where Jews rule over themselves. Okay, if you had to critique it, you guys could write it in if you want. Or, or uh, you know, if you want to speak and raise your hand, that's also okay with me. And want to give a critique? What well, you might say to critique that issue? Yep. Uh, okay, Avni, we'll go with you. It's not so obvious that starting a country in the Middle East is going to be so safe. Okay, excellent. Right, one critique might be, well, maybe it didn't work. Right, uh, if that's it, you could say, wait, it's true that Jews have the ability to defend themselves today, but we're surrounded by a lot of hostile neighbors who prefer we were not here. So it's true that we're not... Ah, very good. Natan, excellent. Okay, so it's true that we're not... Um, worried that, you know, we're going to have a pogrom tomorrow, but we're maybe we're worried that Iran's going to bomb us tomorrow or, you know, Lebanon and Syria will attack, right? So we haven't really put anti-Semitism to the, you know, to the, uh, we haven't killed it, right? And many people claim that, some degree true, that a lot of anti-Israel is simply a new mechanism for the old anti-Semitism. Right now, instead of complaining about Jews and money lending, we'll complain about how Israel treats the Palestinians, right? So arguably, it hasn't been successful at ending anti-Semitism. Secondly, we have Natan. Natan points out the opposite, right? Now, this is really interesting, and I don't want to debate it, guys. But the question would be, like, do we assume that every non-Jewish government is capable of going down the path towards becoming oppressive? They might say yes, but someone might say, no, I think, you know, America has enough, guys, I'm not arguing this. It's just for the sake of argument. I'm not stating it as a position. What if America has enough checks and balances that we don't see it going down the path of, uh, no, fascism, it's not going to be Mussolini. We just don't see that. We see the Jews as being pretty comfortable. Now, obviously, that would have been a better argument perhaps 15 years ago than now. I admit it. But just, again, one might throw that out there. Okay, so one might say, does Israel really solve anti-Semitism? One might say, is it inconceivable there'll be some galut that we will feel much more secure. We will not feel like we're always under threat. So those are two good flip sides of the practical challenge. I'll just say one thing, because again, I want to be as fair as possible. I always want to give like everybody their, uh, their due. Someone might say that being able to defend yourself lets you have a life of dignity. 
Meaning maybe it's not just about how many Jews die. Maybe it's not like some death comparison. Oh, we'll put pogroms on the scale. We'll put Israelis' wars on the scale and we'll see who wins, right? Maybe that's not the way to think about it. Maybe someone could say, when you are in Russia and you know the Cossacks attack, there's nothing you can do about it. Again, think about what was the old method for years. You try to uh, you know have somebody who's in the court who could get the baron on your side or get the king on your side. But uh, that kind of pleading arguably is a less dignified existence where you Jews can actually, no, this is how we defend ourselves. We've got an army and the army does a good job of striking back and fighting defensive warfare and the like. So I think one could still say it's a net win. But again, but a net win doesn't mean that we've solved, we've solved the anti-Semitism problem. Okay, beyond those two critiques, though, I'd like to go to a third critique. Now, normally I do source sheets. I decide not to do a source sheet today, but we're going to do one source. Okay, it's just too good to pass up. We're going to look at one source. Okay, here we go. Oh, we have some really uh, great uh, people here now. We have, uh, you know, uh, David Glassman. David, mazel on your son's uh, engagement there. Okay. Avi Traum, I just did a video. I just talked about one of your sons also. Okay, I'm not going to go Thank you. But uh, you should just know. Okay, here we go. So now let us go to a, a text that just came out very recently, actually. Okay, it's really a wonderful, wonderful text. Everybody can see it, right? Okay, so Rav Salvechik, besides his famous essays on Zionism, of course, Cold Didito Fake is a famous essay. He gave a, a work that, he gave a bunch of speeches which were called Five Addresses. But very recently, they translate some of his Yiddish lectures on Zionism. I think it just came out actually in the last two months. And there are some great quotes there in this latest thing. So we're going to look at just one. Which, if, if anyone's really curious, uh, oh, since it's an older crowd, it's great. The older crowd probably has a Facebook page, right? Because if you're 40 to 60, you're on Facebook, right? Okay, so uh, if you're on Facebook, you can look at my Facebook page. You'll see seven amazing quotes from, from uh, this new work. But let's just see this quote. Okay, here we go. The Zionists employed a particular strategy in founding their movement to return to Zion. Herzl, too, was tripped up by this. It is the negative method of returning to Zion. On this view, anti-Semitism is a natural phenomenon, and only the land of Israel can solve the problem. I am basically in partial agreement with this outlook. There exists an internal hatred for the eternal nation, which neither Shalom Ashes Nazarene nor the Institute of Jewish Affairs will defeat. But this is a faulty ideological basis for such a powerful movement as that which seeks to return to Zion. Now, notice Ravsalvechik is somewhat sympathetic. And again, it's very hard to explain. I admit I cannot really get around my head an explanation why anti-Semitism is so prevalent, why it seems to exist in every century. But there it is. That seems to be the facts. So let's see what the Rav's hesitation is, if it's true that there's always going to be anti-Semitism. First, this is an outlook that is far into the Anglo-Saxon Jew generally and to the American Jew specifically, who believes that notwithstanding various periodic anti-Semitic outbursts, the majority of the American population would not allow itself to be led astray by anti-Semitic demagogues. Now, this is very interesting because Natan Olif, it's basically your point, right? That although here the question is, does the Rav think it's true? At this point, the Rav is focused on the attitude of the community. So you're not going to win over American Jewry by telling them that, you know, Hitler's going to take over in America. Okay, let's read a little bit more. True, the American Jew knows that social anti-Semitism will always exist, but he does not believe, and I likewise do not believe, in the possibility of the type of bestial anti-Semitism that can be found in Europe. So this is fascinating. Okay, this was written, I believe, in 44. 
right? So World War II is not even over yet. Don't forget, the Jews are much less comfortable in America here. This is not America in the 1970s. But the Rav also just doesn't really see, you know, fascism on the horizon in America. So it's not just that the Jews won't be convinced, the American Jew won't be convinced, that the Rav himself isn't convinced. Okay, so that's more the practical point that Natan raised. But let's keep reading. Especially after Hitler gets his just desserts, it must be at this point that it was already clear Germany was going to lose the war. Anti-Semitism will not assume zoological proportions, despite all the dark forces at work in America. Ah, but look what he says now. But that was all, again, every critique we've had so far is true, but it's all practical, right? Will Israel stop anti-Semitism? Will America be subject to such deep anti-Semitism? Here we go. No great ideological movement can be founded upon dread. It is too lowly an emotion to serve as the basis for great ideas in a national movement. Such an ideology and worldview must draw on more elevated sentiments than fear, on love, on moments of spiritual uplift, on a drive towards holiness. That is powerful. Says Rosalvechik, forget the practicality. That's not what it's about, right? In life, I think one can realize there's a 4,000 examples of this. You could be running away. You could be running to, right? And Rosalvechik says there's much more power in this world to running to something than to running away from something. Uh, to give you an example in another context, I think when people move, that could be true. Sometimes people have like a bad experience in one community. So therefore they move, they're running away. But isn't that much less exciting and invigorating when you think you have found your community, right? You have found your, the place where you really want to be. I'll take comments in one second, just finish the point. So at that point, it's not about the practicality, right? If the Rav is right, even if the state of Israel is, so to speak, a failure at ending anti-Semitism, that doesn't matter. It was never just about that. It was about a positive vision. And to give you an example of this, I'm, if I remember correctly, it's the Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa said this. Those famous psukim when Rachel calls out for her children in Sefer Yemiel, right? Rachel Mavakal Banea, there's two psukim in a row. What is the first psukim? And they both envision uh, God saving and bringing the Jews back to the land of Israel. The first psukim says, Vishavu Me'eretz Oyev. We will return from the land of your enemy. And the psukim immediately following that says, the sons will return to their borders. And I think it was Rav Simcha Bunim, if I remember correctly, he says that there's two kinds of aliyah, which we still experience today, right? There are people running away from persecution, right? We think of the aliyah of Russian Jewry or, you know, Iraqi Jewry or Jewry, Jewry of Iran after 48, right? There are people who are running away and there are people who are running too. One of the things that can be said, I think, in praise of American Jews who made aliyah it's a little bit funny because I'm kind of praising myself here, but whatever, right? Is that they are running to rather than running away. Like most of us were not like, I don't like have any dislike for America. Okay? I was not like upset about it or negative towards it, but there's somebody I wanted to be. So I think, now we're going to see what the models are, but just before I take comments, guys, we now have done three things in this year. Number one, two models of secular Zionism. Number two, two models of religious Zionism. We still have to spell the second model. Number three, a critique of the first model, but again, a split, the pragmatic critique and the more fundamental critique, right? The pragmatic critique is just that, is it really true? Is it true that the state of Israel is going to play out as being safer than the United States of America? Is it true that it's going to stop anti-Semitism? But now we have a much more fundamental critique that maybe there's a positive vision we're trying to advance and that is much more significant and much more invigorating than a negative vision, than, than fear and dread. Okay, who had a comment? Somebody, I think, raised their hand. Mike, was it you? 
yes, I have a question. Oh, yeah, please. Um, what do you think about like the the how do you navigate the phenomenon of like sometimes you you it's more palatable to to people that you're trying to get on your side as a Zionist to use the um the anti-Semitism motivator, even if it's not the actual basis of the movement? Okay, that's a great question, Mikey. Uh, really good question. Let me say two things. One is an answer, and one is really a question to the crowd, which uh, maybe you could write to me offline, because I'm really curious about it, actually. You know, maybe I'll put my email up there. One second. While I'm doing this. Actually, I'll just say it. Hey, okay. Easy one. Yitzchakblau2 at gmail.com. Okay, one word, Yitzchakblau2 at gmail.com. I don't know who that other Yitzchakblau is who got one, but uh, somehow I came in second, so I got two. Okay, but uh, in any case, uh, Mikey, I would say if it's totally false, I think I would struggle with it. But what if it's kind of like a minor theme for me, but it's still true? Then I, I don't think I, if it's effective, then I, it wouldn't bother me if I'm using a minor theme. Like, I still would, I still would buy the dignity argument. It's more dignified to, you know, be able to defend yourself. I think that it's a more dignified existence. So in my mind, even though I'm much more into like the Rav and Rav Cook's models, we'll talk about that in a second, and not so into Rav Rhinus's model, at the same time, I'd also point to historical examples. Like we were able to save Russian Jewry or be a place, meaning Israel as a safe haven has played out. So I wouldn't say it's a totally false narrative. We've been a safe haven for Russian Jewry. We're a safe haven for Ethiopian Jewry. So even if it hasn't played out in a utopian fashion, that anti-Semitism has not stopped and other countries are attacking us, I think there's enough validity to it that it wouldn't bother me so much. So that's what I would say, Mikey. That's my answer. Uh, I'm just going to really raise a question to the crowd because it's something I've been thinking about. I just discussed this with my brother recently. Like, I think that, as many of you know, outside of the Orthodox orbit, there's a question of what's going to attract the broader Jewish American Jewish community to Zionism, right? That definitely what was an easier sell in the 1960s has become a harder sell now. And sometimes because they have critiques of our treatment to the Palestinians, uh, but some of the factors might just be they don't really have a sense of Jewry being endangered. And I think when you have a sense of Jewry being endangered, you're kind of much more naturally drawn to the Zionist story. And maybe if you grew up, I don't know, in New York in the 2010s, you, you don't have a, the same sense as uh, Jewry's endangered. And even you look at the state of Israel, like Israel is the most powerful country in its region. And, you know, right now, you know, Syria and Lebanon are afraid to start a war with us. So maybe you have less of a sense that uh, I better support the state of Israel. Who knows what could happen to Will Jewry? And if you go back to, I know, to 1962 and you're not so removed from the Holocaust, right, you think about it very differently. So I'm just going to ask this question. Uh, I'm not going to actually ask for answers. You could write an answer if you want. But it is an interesting question, like what, what Mikey is saying, what would be the way to energize the broader American Jewish community, right? If we succeed within the Orthodox orbit, but we're not succeeding, you know, in conservative world, in the reform world, even in the, certainly in the unaffiliated world, like, what would be a Zionist vision that would win people over? That, I think, is a crucial educational question. Uh, I think there are some people outside the Orthodox orbit who try to work on it. You know, uh, I'll just mention some names. Uh, but again, there are the, the, the Zionists in the Orthodox world. You know, there's a Rabbi Ami Hirsch, who's a reform rabbi, he's very Zionistic. Okay, uh, rabbi Elliot Cosgrove in the conservative movement just gave a sermon on this. If you guys want to listen to his sermon on YouTube, you can. 
Um, I guess I put in, uh, you know, Dr. Danny Gord is also someone trying to like bring Zionism to uh, the larger community. But I think, Mike, I think your question really raised an interesting point. Like, does the anti-Semitism card work in that arena today? So, as, so basically, my answer to your question is I would use it because I think it, there is a truth to it. But I'm even wondering if it's the winning card. Right. That's something that has to be thought about. OK. All right. Let's go back now to the last part, part four. Okay, we have said, we talked about Echad Am and a little bit about Hess, about a different cultural vision. What would be a religious Zionist vision that, again, is positive and not negative, that is running to and not running away? So here, I'm going to make a, a brief point. There's a classic contrast, I bet my father's probably given like 800 cheer on this, between the Rav and Rav Cook. But like most deep thinkers, it's actually more complex than is usually presented. Because how is it usually presented? The Rav is the non-Messianic Zionist, and Rav Kook is the Messianic Zionist. The Rav Kook will say, oh, if the Jews have come back after 2,000 years and, you know, made the desert bloom, that is a clear sign of redemption. And Rav Kook does have passages like that. There's no denying it. Okay, so and even like in our Tfilo, when we refer to, you know, the state of Israel's Reshitz Michad Gulatenu, okay, there's a sense of this is it. We have made it to the, again, it could be a shorter process, could be a longer process, but we are in the ultimate goal of humanity, the ultimate goal of the Jewish people, right? We are part of the redemptive process. And that would raise all the questions of what are the pros of a messianic Zionism and what are the dangers of a messianic Zionism? One might say that there's certain dangers there that maybe if you have a messianic Zionism, you feel like you're guaranteed, or maybe you feel you could do radical actions that you wouldn't do otherwise. Just one example, which thank God did not happen. They, again, thank God there are people here who remember this, not just me. So in the 1980s, there was a group called the Machteret. Okay, one fellow named Yehuda Etzion wanted to blow up the Dome of the Rock. Okay, thank God he was caught before he did it. I think it would have been a disaster. Okay, but I think we could argue that a messianic Zionist is more likely to think that, right? Oh, since I'm in the messianic era, I can do something more dramatic. I could blow up the Dome of the Rock and, you know, force the next stage of the messianic process. Where if I'm not thinking, or just to use a really strong contrast, right, for Avrinus, that would be like the stupidest thing in the world to do. Avrinus says Zionism is about saving Jews from anti-Semitism. Why would I do something that's going to be a tremendous source of anti-Semitism? Okay, so that might be some of the dangers of messianic Zionism. But to be fair, to be fair, that's not the only thing Rav Cook says. Rav Cook has other passages also. One of the passages I particularly like, Rav Cook has a passage in a work called Orot, which, by the way, is translated into English. So even though Rav Cook is not so easy, if you want to get a sense of Rav Cook's Zionism, you could all read Orot in English. I'll just mention the translation I'd recommend is by a man named Bitzal Noor. It's, it's, there's a real talent to be able to translate Rav Cook. Bitzal Noor does a very good job in his translation of Orot. And Rav Kook has a passage where he talks about expanding the playing field of Jewish values. And I think there are a lot of great examples of it. Because even today, even this huge debate about judicial reform, right? If the Jewish community is just a bunch of like small towns in Poland, we don't debate what the Supreme Court should look like. We don't debate how they should be chosen. We don't debate how to do a balance of powers between legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. There's all kinds of interesting value questions that are not asked when you don't have a government. And when you have a government, you have to ask, uh, forget the judiciary, how about the economy? What is the balance between, you know, capitalist and socialist themes, right? Should a country have socialized medicine, right? Should we be a believer in big government or little government? Okay, I don't even have to get into what the right answer to any of these questions are. 
But I think it's certainly true that the creation of the state of Israel has made religious Jewry much more alert to those questions, which are not asked. Again, certainly there are a lot of interesting ethical questions when you're just running your town or running your shul. But when you're doing it on a national basis, uh, you really see it. And notice how halacha has often had to catch up. It's very interesting when halacha has to play catch up. Just to give you like a contrast, it's obvious halacha has to play catch up when it comes to medical technology, because we never had these questions before. Like, is brain death death? Right? Uh, questions like that. Fine. So halacha has had to catch up. But what people don't realize is when it comes to economics and the military, it's the same thing. Right? How many military questions were asked in the last 1900 years? Right? I think if one went through right now, let's say the Rashba. Right? The Rashba wrote a tremendous amount of true vote. I don't know if there's anyone about military use of force right, or innocence on the other side. I'm not sure if the Rashba ever had to address those questions in all those two vote. And now I would say, thank God, they're tough questions, but we have to ask them. So Rav Cook says that is the great thing about having a state again. We could take Torah values, we could take Jewish ideals, and try to figure out how they play out in all kinds of realms that you don't have on a communal basis. So at that point, but notice what just happened. That is a Zionist, a religious Zionist model that has nothing to do with, is the Messiah here? Are we in the redemptive process? So I think we should be fair. We like to box people. Oh, Rav Kook, he's the Messianic Zionist. I would say he is also the Messianic Zionist, but there are other models. And somebody might say, I relate to that Orot model I just said, and less, or, or vice versa. Okay, let us now go to Rav Salvechik. And then we'll bring things to towards the close here. Okay, so Rav Salvechik has a lot of different texts we could work off. But I definitely think the uh, essential Zionist text of Rasulvechik is, again, is Koldo di Dofake. And Rasulvechik is doing something very interesting. He's making a reference, and he's assuming you're going to get it. And I think many people don't get the reference. So I, I, I'm sorry. I know this is not connected to my shirtle, but I have to tell you a funny story about getting references. Okay, so I'm reading Rav Lichtenstein one day, and Rav Lichtenstein's talking about his father-in-law, the Rav. And what he says, Rav Salvechik bestrode the Moetzis Gdolia Torah like a colossus. So I thought, oh, that's a really good phrase. He bestrode them like a colossus. Okay, that's how great he was. Okay, now it's a year later, and I'm reading a historian called Arthur Schlesinger Jr. And I don't remember who it was about anymore. Maybe it was Kennedy. I can't remember anymore. But Schlesinger Jr. says, this politician strode his contemporaries like a, bestrode his contemporaries like a colossus. So I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm upset because I say, oh, my God, Rev. Lichtenstein stole the phrase from Arthur Schlesinger Jr., and he didn't give him credit. Okay, and then I got a little bit older. And I reread Julius Caesar, and I discovered that it's a quote from Shakespeare. And both Schlesinger and Rav Lichtenstein assumed you would get it. Okay, so he was not stealing from Schlesinger, nor Schlesinger stealing from Shakespeare. But unfortunately, it took me a while to realize that. Okay, so guys, be careful. If you become famous authors and try to work off somebody else, they might not get the reference. They might think that you made up the phrase or you stole the phrase. But in any case, Rav Soloveitchik uses imagery from Shira Shirim. Because what do you have in Shir Shirim, of course? You have a male lover knocking, the dode, and the raya, the female lover, doesn't want to get out of bed, right? She says, I've already undressed. I don't have to wash my feet. That's the word of Shir Shirim, right? The voice of my beloved is knocking. Now, the Rav uses it in such powerful imagery. The Rav says we should view the founding of the state of Israel as a knock. And he famously talks about six knocks, and we should heed the call. Right, so basically a call for Jews to eat the call, right? Make Aliyah, support Israel, etc. But the Rav all thought we would realize that he wasn't the first rabbinic Jew to do this. Rabbi Yehuda Levi had already done it in the Kuzri. 
but there's no footnote in the Kodesh Fake saying, look at Kuzuri, book one, whatever. Okay, so the, uh, just to realize, Yudah Levi, who was one of the great Zionists in the Middle Ages, great lovers of Israel, uh, writes this about Bayit Sheni. Yeah, as is well known, when they came back from the Babylonian exile, many Jews decided not to come. It was a minority that decided to come. And Rabbi Yudah Levi is being critical of them for not coming at the time of Ezra Nehemiah. And he already used this imagery. He said, I understand, God knocked on the door. Right? We had a second Beit Magdash. We had a return to Israel. And Jews did not heed the knock. So just realize the Rav did not steal this Rudel Levi. I think he assumed his reader would get it. Okay, But now it's good. Now at least there's another 18 people who get it. Okay, so Rav Soloveitchik was working off of Yudha Levi. And let's just review a little bit briefly what the six knocks are. Now, it is interesting in terms of points that were made before, uh, in terms of Mikey's point and other people's points, that Maybe the Rav does have some, he, I think he does, he actually said in the other quote we saw, that some of the anti-Semitism argument does get him. Because I'll just mention two of the six knocks, like one of them, I'm going to do all of them, but I'll do four of them actually. But one of them is that we have a refuge, we have a place of refuge. Now if Jews are persecuted, they have a place to go, which I said has played out in Russian Jewry and Ethiopian Jewry. So the Rav mentions that. And the Rav also says, now we know, Dam Yehudi Eino Hefker. Right, the blood of Jews is not Hefker. Like people will have to answer for harming Jews. And perhaps the best example of this is probably the capture of Eichmann. Right, Eichmann did not wage war with the state of Israel, but he waged war with the totality of Am Yisrael. So the state of Israel said, it is our mission that the Eichmanns of the world should face justice. So one could view that as a real value. Again, it's not just like this mathematical calculation how many Jews die in stage one in this uh, plan, how many Jews die in the other plan. So also, can, will people have a sense that, you know, you can't just with impunity, right, do bad things to Amisrael? So I would say two of the rub six knocks are kind of a little bit in the pragmatic camp, right? It's a place of refuge, and it is um, a way to say, like, serving note, serving note to the enemies of Amisrael. Okay, but the rub doesn't only have that. The rub also has some more idealistic components, but I would say, again, that these components are not messianic. So it's almost interesting. Uh, in fact, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll criticize him. In, in, yeah, why not? I can. It's public. Okay. Uh, uh, the nephew of Rav Salvechik, a man named Ramosha Meiselman, became pretty Haredi. So he wants to downplay the Rav Zionism. So he says the Rav Zionism is all pragmatic. But I think he cheats a little bit because he basically says, what are the two choices? Either you're a messianist like Rav Cook or it's pragmatic. So if you're not a messianist, then it's pragmatic. But there might be other idealistic things that are not messianic. So I think it's a little bit of an unfair dichotomy he sets up. And even in Rav Kook, when I when we talk about like applying Jewish values across the board, I would call that a more idealistic, non-messianic vision. So I think there are, is a middle ground. So I'm just going to mention two more things the Rav says. Rav Salvechik says that this is great for Jewish identity. Right, that the average assimilated Jew now has something to connect to. Now, I admit that in our era, it's more of a problem in terms of broader American Jewry, although I think it's still true. But certainly, think about the role Israel's played for a lot of people. Right, uh, when did they feel pride? They felt pride like uh, in the raid in Entebbe, when we were able to rescue, you know, hijacked uh, passengers. They feel pride when Israel, you know, sends rescue workers because we're good at it. Uh, places where earthquakes have destroyed buildings and Israel's able to be helpful, right? So I would say for many Jews who are not connected to Torah and mitzvot, the state of Israel is a tremendous connecting. And even with, you know, 
many modern, let's say, more liberal voices being critical of Israel, I still think it plays out to a great degree that it is a source of Jewish identity. And the Rav also says it's actually important theologically because what was the Christian claim for centuries? The Christian claim for centuries is that God has abandoned the Jewish people and he shifted his allegiance to followers of Jesus, Jesus, to Catholic Israel, right? The new Israel. And what is the ultimate proof? Well, the Jews are scattered through the world and they have to bear witness in their exilic suffering. And all of a sudden, it's one of the reasons, by the way, that the Catholic Church, Rav points it out, struggled a bit with Israel. Because the Jews returned to homeland is a bit of a theological blow. Wait, maybe God has not abandoned his relationship with the Jewish people, right? That they were able to come back after 1900 years. So I would say those are some very significant ideas that I would not call pragmatic, but nor would I call messianic. So I'm going to do a brief review. And then if anyone has a closing comment or question. Okay, so here's the brief review. We said, even in the beginning, in secular Zionism, there's already two models, right? Herzl's inspired by the Dreyfus trial. It's about saving the Jews from European anti-Semitism. And we have Achad Am, who has a much more of a cultural vision. Although, as Abner pointed out, or Lee pointed out, it's not that one didn't have the other theme at all. But you can have a main theme. Then we move to religious world. So, oh, notice the religious world has the same split, actually. For Rav Rhinus, it was about escaping anti-Semitism, a place of refuge, and that's why you could imagine Mizrahi voting in favor of the Uganda plan. And then you have others. And no, no, there's a lot of larger vision at work here. Certainly for Rav Koch, there is a larger vision at work here. Okay. Then we did a little bit of a critique of the pragmatic one. We questioned, is it pragmatically true? Because on the one hand, you could say Israel hasn't ended anti-Semitism. And as Natan pointed out, some people might feel that there could be a galut that is more secure. Uh, and then I wanted to say, beyond that, I think there's an ideological critique, which is, in my mind, is more significant, where Slavichik says, you don't want to build a movement on negativity. Oh, it's because of fear. We want to run to something, not run away from something, right? Veshavu banim Gulan more than veshavu meretzoyev. But again, I do want to emphasize, in terms of Mikey's point, I don't think we have to throw out the anti-Semitism model. I still think the state of Israel, I think a lot of us feel better that we know there's a place that Jews could run to. And Israel has really served that that function. So I wouldn't throw it out altogether. I would just put it more on the uh, the minor flame, as it were. And then we looked for other models. We had two within Rough Cook, one a more messianic model, where we say this is the you know the gulo we've all been waiting for. Okay, coming at a faster or slower pace. We talked about some of the dangers of that. Or Rav Cook talks about this is really widens the scope. It really widens the playing field for all our values. Like I think David Hartman writes somewhere, I, I couldn't find it. I was looking for it at some point. That Israel is about moving from the minor leagues to the major leagues. Like, uh, okay, in the minor leagues, you only have to worry about your show in your community. Like in the major leagues, you have to worry about a, a health system, an economic system, a judiciary, a military. That's when you're playing in the majors. So I, I think there really is a lot to that. And then we talk about the Rav kind of combining them, right? The Rav has more pragmatic kind of considerations. Again, the refuge and Dam Yudi Enohef Ker, right? Jewish blood is not free to just be shed. Right, someone's going to capture the Eichemins of this world. And at the same time, the Rav talks about perhaps more idealistic visions. This is going to connect, you know, secular Jewry to, the, to, to Judaism. This is going to be a theological point uh, in terms of Christianity's claim that, uh, that we've been rejected. And uh, there's no reason why uh, one model has to win. I, I, I think in life, it's good in general to combine things. Like often in life, we have multiple motivations. Why shouldn't an ideology have multiple components to it also? So maybe there could be a little bit of a response to anti-Semitism. 
maybe a little bit of some of the Rav Cook's themes, uh, different themes could combine together. All right. Does anybody have a closing comment or question before we wrap things up here? Avner. You think that also Israel prevents a lot of like Jewish decadence? Like it's not like the same debates or the same conversations like it. it has okay, so that's them. really interesting. Okay, I just want to point out to all the parents in the room. I'm sorry, I'm going to do a, a little um, advertisement for a writer. Although since your kids already went there, so maybe I don't need to do this. But notice what good comments we get from our students. Like think about the comments that were made today by Abner, Liev, Natan, and Mikey, right? You should all send your sons to write them. Okay, okay, here we go. So, Abner's is very interesting. I'm going to raise a point. I don't know why this is, but I'm open to suggestions. I would suggest that if we look at cultural and intellectual trends in the firm world and in not the firm world, there's a lot more interesting stuff going on in Israel now than in America or England. I hope no Americans here are insulted. Okay, I think if you look at like rabbis writing interesting books and having interesting positions, I'll just mention a couple of them, like in the world of Jewish thought, some of you may have heard of Rav Yuval Shurlow, I think writes very interesting things. In Tanakh, there's a fellow in my neighbor named Professor Yoni Grossman, who I think is doing great stuff. Uh, in practical halacha, some people might talk about Rav Elazar Malameh's Panini Halacha as important new halachic work. Um, I don't know, should we throw someone else in? Okay, in the Gemara Bi'ilan, you might talk about, I know what Rav Reema Cohen's doing in Utniel, right? I'm not sure, I get hope no one's insulted. I'm not sure I can think of pal names in any of those fields for American Jewry, right? Tanakh, for sure not. No one like Yoni. Uh, maybe in Gemara and Machshava, I'm trying to think. All right, I'm not going to rank everybody right now. But I, I just think, by the way, not even just individual names, even just think about institutions. Let's say I started to list Okay, you know what? We'll make fun of modern orthodoxy for one second. Sorry, one last joke. If anybody has to leave, you don't have to stay for this joke. Okay, but in NYU, there's something called, there used to be a magazine called Hamavasar, and they would put out a Purim edition every year. So one year, my friend Robert Clapper wrote a brilliant ad, right? It was, there was an ad in the Hamavasar, new series, modern orthodox gedolim cards. And then the advertisement said, collect both cards. Okay, so uh, that, okay, sorry, I, that was pretty funny. Okay, so I think if we think about like modern Orthodox institutions in America. Okay, so we've got YU. Let's say we count Jose. Okay, we've got two, right? In the world of like post high school education, like how many things can you think of? Okay, you go to Israel, uh, some of you probably know this, just think about the range of Yeshivot Hezder and Midrashot and Mechinot, right? It is so varied, varied ideologically, varied politically, varied. And culturally, it is just a richer world. So I realize I haven't really explained why this is, but I do think it's very interesting that life, I'd love to hear a good theory why. Life has played out that way. Right? If you ask me where today is the center of interesting Jewish Torah, I would say the state of Israel by far. Okay, I don't know why that is, but it Can has Can I make happened. a suggestion as to why? Yeah, please. I'd love to hear. I think, I think in America, most kids, like, they learn two years in yeshiva. It's usually their parents want them to learn one. In Israel, there's really so much infrastructure for a lot of just pure time to be devoted to learning. Okay. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I just think it's deeper than that. I, I think there are other factors that work here too, but here I'm more sure of the result than about how we got there. I'm convinced that that is true today. Okay, How we got there is an interesting question. Okay, anybody else with a comment or question? Any of what we've done? We're good? Okay, so it was a joy learning with you as always. I thank the parents and the students and uh, and uh, my my parents actually.